Trevor, and for myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to episode 216. This time around, you are joined by Scott Ian and Charlie Benante of Anthrax as they celebrate 40 years of the band, the time of release. Hang out as they talk about the horror influence on themselves and their music, working with John Carpenter, collecting, and their new graphic novel that's available now for pre-order, currently due out May 15th, that brings to life the songs from their 1987 masterpiece, Among the Living, with contributions from Rob Zombie, Gerard and Mikey Way, Greg Nick. Tarot, Corey Taylor, and more. Also just announced, Charlie's Project Silver Linings, a collection of songs he's been working on with friends through the pandemic. That's out May 14th on Megaforce. All sorts of anthrax-centric greatness. Turn up episode 216 right now. I've never seen anyone so impatient, Billy. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio here are two of the most influential musicians and songwriters in rock music history. Originally formed in 1981, they completely reinvented heavy metal and their creativity and innovation is responsible for everything that followed. They took elements of punk and hardcore, comic books and horror, and made music that was faster, smarter, and funnier than anything done before, and they continue to color outside the lines to this day. It's that fearlessness and experimentation that has led to 11 studio albums, four of which went gold, an Innovator Award, multiple Golden Gods Awards, six Grammy nominations, and more, making them one of the most successful metal bands in the world. Their most recent album is For All Kings that entered at the top of the Billboard chart. They're celebrating their 40th year as a band. We are honored to welcome legends Scott Ian and Charlie Benante from Anthrax. Yeah! Yeah! Wow. I don't know how to live up, live up to that intro. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, man, thank you so much for spending some time yeah. with us. We want to talk about some of the amazing things that you guys have in store for us in 2021, like this graphic novel we are so excited for, and we also want to get into the horror influence that's instilled in the DNA of Anthrax and also individually with your incredible breadth of work therein. So let's start by getting into the first time you guys remember being impacted by a horror film and what that moment was like for you. We can start with Scott. Really early on, uh, my mom was a horror fan. So when I was a kid, you know, I'm talking late 60s, we used to watch Chiller Theater and creature feature on either Saturday or Sunday mornings. Char- maybe Charlie might know more of the details, but chiller theater and creature feature, they were on like WPIX in New York and, and channel five, like just what were then the local channels. And uh, they would show horror movies on it's like Saturday mornings. And I'd be doing that instead of watching cartoons, like, you know, so they were showing, uh, Universal, obviously, and the Hammer stuff and, you know, anything that had come out, you know, pre late 60s or early 70s. So, you know, my first true introduction was the, the Universal stuff was Frankenstein and Wolfman and Dracula and, you know, the uh, Gilman. And uh, 
And I'd say of all of those, the for some reason, the Wolfman was the one I connected the most with. Of I, I love all those movies, but the as a kid, and you're wearing the shirt, I see. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, that that was the one that I I don't know. Maybe I just I already had a sense of I, I felt a lot of empathy for the character and. But uh, yeah, and of course that that was the gateway for everything that that came after that. And then Charlie, how about you? Same story, basically. Um, we used to have uh, WPIX was Channel Eleven, and then WNEW was Channel Five, and they were both indie cha- indie stations. And Saturday night was and Saturday, and then Sunday morning afternoon they would show uh abbott and costello movies on sundays (laughs) and that's how i got to know it you know abbott and costello meet frankenstein and i just became like oh my god what is this what is this and then another big one was king kong i remember being like crazy about king kong i have a big king kong there was a king kong poster with he was holding Faye Ray and they had the skyline and I had that on my wall that my, my mama got me. But the first time I ever went to the movie theater was a, it was at the drive through and we went to see this movie called Willard that I was like crazy <laughs> about because it was about rats and all that stuff. And back back then they would do a double feature at the drive in. The other movie was Night of the Living Dead. I remember seeing this movie and I was in the backseat with my mom and my sister and there were parts where my mom was trying to cover my eyes. And I remember seeing other people getting out of their car, like they couldn't handle the movie and it was just crazy. So that's my earliest memories of those, wow. that type of thing. The gateway. Yeah. You know, you know, it was another thing for me that just popped in my head was dark shadows. I, I have this Collins. Yeah. I have like distinct memories of being at my grandparents house <laughs> in Queens, like, like in the afternoon and, uh, and their house already was dark shadows. It was dark <laughs> and like there was cobwebs and, and, uh, and then I'd be watching this weird vampire soap opera and I was like six years old, you know, six, seven years old. I didn't really understand most of the subtext of the show, but I understood there was a vampire biting people. And, and that was enough for me to be hooked. So, yeah, that was another thing early on. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I never liked the show, but I had the game, the Barnabas Collins uh, <laughs> Dark Shadows game. And it came with this ring with like this red, big fucking stone on it. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. badass, man. Yeah, they have, like, there was a time where there was amazing horror games. You guys remember that game, I Vaunt to Bite Your Finger, where you'd stick your <laughs> finger into Dracula's mouth and it actually, yeah. the board game would bite yeah. you. Wow. No, I had the, the shitty version, Pie in the Face. I didn't have that cool game. At what point did horror movies become scary? Did you guys remember um, the movie that frightened you? The Exorcist scared the hell out of me. Yeah, you know, to this day, I, it's a weird thing. Even as a kid, I was never scared by horror movies. I love them, but none of it. I, see, I didn't get to see, Charlie, you saw Exorcist in the theater, right? Yeah, my mom took, again, my mother took me. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it in the theater. I didn't get to see it till much later. You know, at some point when it was either out on VHS or on television somehow, but then that would have been not the obviously it wouldn't have they would have cut lots of scenes but i never got to see that in the theater you know horror does it it doesn't i i can't tell you why i don't have that same reaction to that most people have to horror 
even though it's it's my favorite but uh i don't get scared jump scares don't scare me um, maybe because i just know when they're coming too well but yeah nothing's ever scared me i can actually i can say that it's kind of annoying (laughs) but it's still fun for you i mean you still enjoy it super fun but but it just doesn't like I, i i've said this over the years one of the movies that's creeped me out the most, and I wouldn't categorize it as a horror movie, was Blue Velvet from David Lynch. Sure, yeah. Like, there are scenes in that movie that I just found so unbelievably creepy and weird, maybe because they're certainly more real than most of the stuff I grew up with in horror, like monsters or things like that, or then once it got into the slasher films of the 80s, and which I found more funny than scary um but there was something about blue velvet for me that's sitting in the theater i actually could remember gripping the you know the 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 handrails of the seat sometimes during that movie because it seemed so real to me because it was like just people who were fucked up and uh so but horror horror i could actually say um although recently there was that movie um the one with uh tony collette um hereditary hereditary Hereditary. I can't say I was like, oh, my God, I'm scared. But that movie stayed with me for a few weeks after the fact. I have to say that movie definitely kind of fucked with my head, it, like in a in a bad, good way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the same yeah. experience. It's been a while yeah. since a movie has done that. How about you, Charlie? Have there been anything recently that has kind of stuck with you? CNN? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, right. um, I, I just want to go back to The Exorcist and kind of explain why. Um being that I was young at the time when it came out, my older cousins and my sisters had been building this movie up. They saw it, you know, and all I was, I was just listening like, oh, this part and that part. And the other thing was I grew up Catholic. So during that time, Catholicism, like especially in America, you, it was, you didn't touch that, you know, and this was the first movie to really go into that. And I think being that she was like a nine or a 10 year old kid, I don't know. It just freaked me out. Like, could this really happen? Can the devil really get into you if you don't make your communion confirmation? It was like all these things. <laughs> so that's why it scared the hell out of me. Cause I was like, is my bed shake? No, it's not shaking, you know, shit like that. So and I remember coming home and my mom said I was a mess after that movie slept with the light on. And my nephew was there too. Frankie, he saw it too. And he was a little freaked out too. Gay religion. But that's one of those things where, like, even the church has exorcists. It's, you know, they say yeah. it's real. So, hey, man. I remember based on a true story, this happened to some kid. Uh, I forget where it was. It wasn't in D.C., but maybe it was. I don't know. It was a boy or I don't know. But anyway, so that urban legend or urban myth, I don't know. It was just it freaked me out. And while we're on The Exorcist, I actually really liked that Exorcist TV show with Ben Daniels. I thought it was great. Dude, it's great, man. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a spoiler anymore. It's like tough shit. But the reveal at the end of season one, when you find out it's Reagan, like that, I was blown away. I, I thought that's I thought that series was great. Uh, I'm, oh, I'm kind of. Bu- well, maybe I shouldn't be bummed that it's gone because they probably would have ruined it if they kept going. But that's I thought that season was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing, man, especially when you get to that episode five twist where you realize her oh, name is yeah. anagram and all that. And then you're like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And even be on TV, they kind of push the envelope a little bit, you know, where they kind of show you some stuff that they should not have shown you on TV. <laughs> oh, it was very much so just like that Hannibal series, which I also loved. 
which I couldn't believe this stuff they were showing on on regular TV. It was yeah. it was amazing. Then I thought the whole backdrop of using Chicago, you know, as a, as a whole backdrop for the for the series was pretty cool. So it's not just you mm-hmm. know a possessed girl in the bedroom, but man, they took it to Lake Michigan. They took it to the streets, to the underground. You know, yeah. it, it was pretty crazy, pretty crazy. But yeah, well done, man. Well done. Do you remember the first time you took a creative leap directly inspired by horror? There's got to be something on spreading the disease, right? I'm trying I guess to think Madhouse, maybe. Madhouse, but I think, of course, Among the Living has many references. And, of course, now it's dark as Blue Velvet. Madhouse <laughs> is about, you know, insane asylum. Um, so that old horror trope. I'm trying to think what else, if there was anything else on spreading that might have been definitive. I'm probably forgetting something. But, uh, well, the the song The Enemy was influenced by the holocaust which is more again real life horror but yeah among the living for sure was when we jumped into the pool because i mean half that record is based on stephen king stories and yeah that would have been the first one really that that, that kind of opened the floodgates charlie for instance was your kind of exploration into visual art kicked off through horror and were you working on that directly inspired by it before even the music got involved it wasn't until we started to get a, a few songs under under our belt and there was like uh, some of Scott's lyrics that it kind of all clicked. And I just saw this cover and the preacher, of course, from Poltergeist, his image in that in that movie was just freaked me out and kind of haunted me and uh, kind of based that cover on his likeness. I'm curious, what was your gateway into the world of visual art? Well, I grew up drawing and playing music, and that's all I wanted to do. So uh, being in the band, I was going to a graphic arts school before the band, but our first album had come out, and we were going on tour, so I left. And then uh, basically I got a lot of the art education at record company art departments, going there and talking to the artists and uh, people who were being really creative and it just worked out really well. I've heard you mention Disney's Fantasia before as a, as an inspiration, right? And that's a real amalgamation of animation and music and that whole Night on Bald Mountain sequence is extremely metal. Did being exposed to that affect you? Love that movie and especially that scene and the music behind it. God, they did such a great job by blending music and art and together in that movie and i remember just being amazed at that i didn't really care for the rest of the movie that much i like the sorcerer's apprentice part but that that other scene night on bull mountain was just amazing and you made that really cool nine inch vinylmation mickey mouse years back and yeah you did that signing over at d street in downtown disney and they had that awesome photo shoot where they took the figures and stuck them in the hallway of the haunted mansion. Yeah. Which was never done before. They never did anything like that before. And they photographed the four mummy Mickey's there. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> How did this happen? Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. And I noticed, I think zero was in the background. So it might've been during the nightmare before Christmas. It was overlay. It was now I know you're a nightmare fan. Did you get to be involved in the photo shoot or go through a tour of the mansion or anything like that? No, no, I didn't. They just did it (laughs) one day, but it was cool. But I, I, I never even got a chance to get one of those things. They were just gone. I only did 12 of them and they just sold right away. 
how did you end up working with Disney? Was it uh, directly did the company come to you or did? No, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Dom DeLuca, who has Brooklyn Projects in California. He knew someone at Disney and put me together with them. And that was it. Talking about collections. I know you're a Nightmare Before Christmas collector, as well as a ton of other stuff. What do you guys both like about collecting? I'm a completist, like I said. So if I have one of one series and then I find out there's like six other pieces, I got to have all six, (laughs) which is a problem when you have a house that's only a certain size. So that's my problem. But it's like crack, you know, and uh, you just mentioned this and I saw this the other day and I had to have it. Oh, that's that's so cool. That's cool, man. I learned an interesting bit of trivia about that, uh, that it was designed by Millicent Patrick, who was the the lady who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. Really? Wow. Yeah, she was she was Disney's first female animator. And that was her first project was designing that creature from Fantasia. I always thought the animators who did Disney just had the best like animation. They just make made people look like people you know the way they moved rather than other animation like uh you know the Hanna-Barbera or even the Warner Brothers stuff that was coming you know I thought Disney just just took it to a different level you know is there anything recently that Disney has done that has stood out to you the Mandalorian (laughs) I love Coco oh yeah as far as animated stuff yeah Coco's pretty awesome it's such a beautiful story Uh, being that Scott and I have, have have kids and stuff you know, you start to see things uh, through their eyes. And that's how I saw, like, um, what's the movie she was into when she was small? Um, Frozen. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That, that, that was played 24-7 here. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you, have, you have no choice but to learn the songs and know the characters, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> Got to do the metal version now. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I have a son, so I was never subjected to that. He never got in, into that. Lucky, lucky for me, I guess, but all the Pixar stuff, I mean, I love all the Pixar stuff, really dig even the, the Disney animated stuff like Wreck-It Ralph or, I mean, I, I'm really not sure how it all works over there with between Pixar and Disney animation. Well, I've been to Pixar, so I know they're two separate places, but I, the quality that comes out of there for me is, you know, it's just incredible. I, I really enjoyed Soul. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I, I just think they do, you know. You don't have me to say it. It, They do great work. Scott, what kind of stuff are you collecting? You know, I I mean, the only thing I really collect is uh, is Stephen King first editions and limited editions. Like that's my I, I don't really collect toys, even though I mean, you see some stuff here, but it's just some specific things I like. Or I mean, it's Eddie and it's it's actually Stan Lee and Stephen King from Simpsons. Uh, um <laughs> I don't really like I, I'm not a big like toy guy, really. I might see something like I I like Charlie mentioned this, like I had to get this just because it's so good. <laughs> the thing about being in the band, too, is you you end up making a lot of friends in these industries because there are also people that like that work for toy companies seem to really love metal as well so we get a lot of those perks you know a lot of our we have a lot of friends that work for so they just send you stuff too they're like my my buddy randy at neca just sent like all the back to the future stuff and that's something i know i wouldn't have gone out and collected but i i love having all the figures like 
but uh, the the King books is is something that uh, I actually actively collect, and I want to be a completist, but it's it's really difficult and really expensive because there are some things that are just so unbelievably rare. There was a thing called the plant, which is the thing that basically for a few years was his Christmas card. So if you were on his Christmas card list at some point, like in the late 80s and early 90s, you would get the next chapter of the story that he would hand staple together himself and sign it. It's one of the rarest things. And there's like three. I think there's three of them. There's three of these little chat books that he would do himself and send out. And it's really, really rare that anyone who even has these puts them up for sale. And when they do, it's it's I mean, it's crazy expensive for a set. I saw one set once at a store that Gerald Winters and Sons in Bangor, Maine. This guy, Gerald, is like a he's like the foremost authority on King books. And uh, he had a set there in his store. And he let me look at it. They were already sold, uh, but the guy who bought him wasn't going to be home for months or something. So he didn't want them shipped yet. And he said, just display them in your store so other people could appreciate them. And I, th- I remember looking at them and it was something like $35,000, you know, someone had spent on these three little, basically rexagraph, like, you know, 15 pieces of paper or something. And uh, I remember my son, he was pretty young at the time. He said, daddy, you can't spend $35,000 on that. You can buy a car for that much money. <laughs> I was like, I'm not spending $35,000 on this. Oh, but did you get to hold them and then riff through them or anything? Yeah, like that? yeah. I, yeah. He let me look at them and, and hold. I mean, I've read the story. The story's been printed. They put it out. But to actually own those those little booklets oh, would, be, would be something. There's a NECA figure of you complete with the Walking Dead zombie head, which is really awesome. How awesome was that having that made? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's very exciting to uh, to have my own <laughs> action figure. It's super cool. The fact that they wanted to do it and I was able to use my Walking Dead makeup, you know, as one of the like bonus heads. And uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's amazing to me that I have that. I'm sure your kids were like, this is the coolest thing. Like, I'm sure if no, he sees it and he thinks it's cool, but he's more into uh, music. If now, if I, if I came home with a, a, a drum kit that had a zombie head all over it or something, he might be into it, but wow, no, that's cool. Though, so much man. about action nice. figures anymore. He kind of grew out of it. The boo crew will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is the sound of a normal heart. Now, listen to that same heart subjected to a night of total terror. (laughs) Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. 
night of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear, an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night of total terror. One thing to note, too, is, I mean, you, your guys' work in Anthrax has not only been inspired by horror, but this evolution kind of happened over the years where horror and pop culture has been inspired by Anthrax, where Stephen King admits to working on rewrites with Anthrax on in the background and name drops you guys yeah, in, like, the yeah. third Dark Tower book. And Scott writes the foreword for the Overlook Connection edition of The Stand, or Charlie speaks on the special features in that Jaws documentary, The Shark is Still Working, that came out. How does that feel for you guys when it's reflected back on you that way? Blown away. It's, yeah. it's mind-blowing to me. I actually, I think it was through his son, Joe Hill, put me in touch with Steve. And it's not like we're in regular touch or contact, but we do email each other once in a while. And uh, it's like when I see his name in my inbox, it's like, forget about it. It's like I can't even it's like a lightning strike through the top of my head. Like, I can't believe that the guy's actually like talking to me like he he knows I exist and we have like a an email conversation. It's kind of mind blowing. As a fan, you know, I, I feel like that's something you never lose. You know, Charlie and I, over the last few years, too, have been doing horror cons a lot together. And um, it's actually one of the things I most miss since COVID. Me started. too. Like, besides, obviously, playing live shows, but I really miss horror cons. I really have a good time at those things, hanging out. And because uh, we're fans, we just love it so much. So if you get recognized by somebody or or some brand or entity that you've been a fan of your whole life it's it's pretty mind-blowing do you have favorite horror cons that you guys like to go to we love monster palooza yeah here in la we got monster palooza son of monster palooza all that we've we've done monster palooza uh yeah and um we've done texas frightmare i've done chiller i used to go to chiller when it first started back in uh, in new jersey but i horror hound I is like great the horror hound is great I really enjoy them. I think they're fun. And what's better than just hanging out? And then you look across the way and there's Pee Wee Herman, you know, signing stuff. Uh, it's fucking weird. And uh, hanging out with Tom Savini and Greg Nicotero, you know, it's like, come on. I love this stuff. There was an article that came out years ago where you actually had either tracked down or were gifted or something like one of the actual barrels from Jaws. Yeah, yeah. The story with that was my friend Matt, Matt Taylor, who did the uh, he did the Jaws book and he grew up on Martha's Vineyard and he knew a lot of the people who worked on the movie. So he hit me up. He wanted to do this Metallica book, this Master of Puppets book. And he's like, could you put me in touch with the the guys? And, and I did. So for a reward for doing this for him, he talked to the Pete, the Murphys who worked on the movie. He was the wrangler for the movie and they had two barrels still there. And he got me one. When he was telling me this, I was just like, wait a minute, what? 
like Scott was saying, seeing Stephen King's name in your inbox, it was just like, wait a minute, I'm really going to get a barrel? So funny story. About two years ago, Richard Dreyfuss was here doing a signing. And my friend said, he's going to be here. He knows you're coming with the barrel. He's going to sign it for you and everything. And he did. (laughs) Wow. And it's like, I wish someone could have filmed me walking through the halls with this big yellow barrel. Like, (laughs) hey, Richard, how are you? Where is the barrel now? Like, where do you keep it? Oh, in the barrel room. <laughs> I would have a barrel, a barrel room. room. I totally would. Just for it. Uh, so you amazing. know, the saying goes, you're going to need a bigger house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what, what did he say when you presented with him with the barrel? What was it? What was that conversation like? And what did you say to him? He laughed. He's like, that's a barrel. And he's like, I've seen a bunch of these, you know. So uh, there was some that were in the movie, which, of course, I don't know where they were. And then these were extras. Um, I don't know if this one was in the movie or not. But, yeah, he got a kick out of it. And he didn't know what to to sign on the barrel. So he just scribbled some stuff. And uh, but he was fun, you know, meeting Richard Drivers because. Back in the 70s, man, Richard Dreyfus was like he was the actor, you know. And uh, what was the movie he did? After Jaws with Marsha Mason, that was like uh, Goodbye, the Goodbye Girl. Girl. Yeah, the Goodbye Girl. And then, of course, he was before that, he was in American Graffiti and Close, Close Encounters. Yeah. Oh, I love Richard Dreyfus. I asked him a couple of things about Robert Shaw, and he was very kind about it. You know, he didn't really go into it that much, but he just said, Great actor, great man. And, you know, but I heard a lot of stories about Robert Shaw on that set that he was he was drinking a lot, you know, and he was that character off off screen too. Getting to more of the infiltration of anthrax into the horror zeitgeist. Twenty years ago, you guys are part of an extraordinary project and working directly with John Carpenter, composing this incredibly unconventional soundtrack for Ghosts of Mars. Yeah. Tell us about your first time meeting John and how fun and crazy that experience must have been. I've seen footage where Joe Bashara was there, too, who's now doing you know all the music for the Conjuring series. He was a part of that project as well. And tell us about that. I got a call from our then manager's office asking if I'd want to go over to Cherokee with the studio to meet with John Carpenter to talk about working on this film score that he was doing for a new movie. And at the time I I lived two minutes away from Cherokee on Fairfax. So, and, uh, and I knew the guys at Cherokee. So I I was like, yeah, when they're like, when are you available? I said, I I can be there in 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So then they called back and they said, yeah, he, he would see you now. So I went over to Cherokee and I, I mean, I was really nervous and uh, I went over there and walked in and, He's sitting in the control room, listening to stuff. And we talked for about 15, 20 minutes and he showed me some stuff. And like, this is like this. I think we, we just, this was what uh, late nineties, right? 1997 or eight. Or, yeah. So I, I think I might've just gotten a laptop. So this might've been for me to be like right at the beginning of email. I think I might've emailed Charlie or everyone else and, and, and just said, Hey, you know, John Carpenter wants us and here's what they want. You know, they want us to be in L.A. for a week and come to the studio and write music with John. And like, I couldn't get the words out fast enough. It was like <laughs> I ran out of Cherokee. My head was exploding. I didn't even have a. I don't think I had a cell phone. So like I had to get home to tell everybody. It was like I was losing my mind. And uh, yeah, it was 
it was incredible. We spent a week with that dude in the studio and and he was very nice about answering all our questions. About the, <laughs> about I, uh, thing. <laughs> my, my whole thing was I didn't even care about the work. I just all I kept thinking about was what am I going to bring to be signed? <laughs> and uh, every time there was a break in like music and stuff, bam, you just get hit with questions about. So at the end of the thing, is it McCready or is it, is it, uh, you is know, child, child, <laughs> you know, st stuff like that. Well, he told us the answer, but a great story that goes with that story was we went to the Grammy awards and this is when it was in New York for a couple of years. And then the after party, we went to the after party. So we all go to the party and the doors open and there's a huge room gala event and everything. And the first person I see is Kurt Russell. And I'm like, oh, fuck, it's Kurt Russell. Let's go, let's go. And he was with a group of people, Goldie Hawn. So we all just kind of move next to him and we're drinking. And hey, Kurt, how are you? And he's like, hey, guys, how are you? And he comes into our group. And then we're having a conversation with Kurt Russell and it's the greatest thing. And then Goldie catches a glimpse of it. Scott, remember this? And she yeah. comes over and tries to grab him to go back. And he's like, oh, no, honey, I'm talking to the anthrax guys. So he stays with us even longer. And he just talks and talks. It was such a great night, man. I'll never forget that. Oh, my God. And then so working with John Carpenter, how did the composing work out? Was he there giving his own ideas? I mean, he's obviously an incredible composer. Was he giving you musical ideas? Like how how did that dance work between you and him? He a lot he of would it, show us. Yeah, he would. We had screens set up out in the in the in the room. So each one mm -hmm. of us at our little station, we'd have a monitor, and then he would play back a scene. And really, the only direction, if I remember correctly, he would give us he was he would give us tempo directions. Right. Like I want something like about this BPM. And then like right here, I need like a big crescendo. I need like a climactic moment here. And then, you know, maybe pull it back through this. And then I need it to build up to this again. Like it was more dynamic direction than actual. He wasn't telling us what kind of riffs he wanted or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. to, just to back up the story, he uh, when he had started working on the music for, for the movie, and I get, he had gotten in his brain that he wanted this metal sound. He he was looking for that kind of a sound for some of the scenes in the movie. And it was, a, I think it was an assistant who worked for him at the time who said, you know, my friend works for Anthrax's manager. You know, they're a metal band. They would probably love to do this. And he's like, you think, you think they would want to like do something like that? She's just like, let me find out. So that's how we got the call in the first place. And, uh, so, yeah, so his direction, it was very much just about tempo, timing, in and out at this this part. And then we would have the scene and we would watch the scenes over and over again and then just kind of start feeling it, you know, yeah. uh, as we were going. And then maybe he would give us little directions here and there. Oh, maybe get to this part a little quick. I mean, I remember we had a cue, I think it, even on the soundtrack record, I think it might be called Pam Greer's Head. Yeah, that was the one when her head gets chopped off, he wanted yeah. to like build and then bam, you know? Yeah. You know. He needed a big moment on Pam Greer getting decapitated. So like it, we had obviously never worked that way before. So it was very exciting for us as well. When John Carpenter's standing there smoking a cigarette going, well, 
Pam Greer is going to get her head chopped off, so I really need that. <laughs> That's amazing. What an experience. Yeah. And you guys also yeah. worked with this dude I'm obsessed with, this guitar guy, Buckethead. We weren't there at the same time. Oh, you didn't get to see? Uh, okay. I was wondering no, if you had no. any Buckethead stories. There was another thing. with Our lead guitar player at the time was, was our friend Paul Crook. And he, <laughs> I don't know why... He thought this was a good idea. But at some point he's sitting there because we would sit around in the control room and just talk with John. And uh, at some point he says to John, you know, I, I love the, your theme for Halloween. You know, it's iconic. It's classic. He goes, and it's amazing. Even the fact that you left the mistake in, it makes it even better. <laughs> <No>! <laughs> and Carpenter, like Car Carpenter kind of takes a drag on his cigarette and he's like, what mistake? <laughs> What are you talking about? And this was like, this was like day two of, of a week long session. And John, he didn't talk to Paul the rest of the week. Oh my God. <laughs> we were like, what are you, what are you thinking? What are you, what, who's, what mistake? Like he wrote it. He did it. What are you talking? He's like, well, there's a mistake in the thing. If you, I'm like, oh my God, why would you say that? <laughs> I guarantee it's the only time John Carpenter had ever heard that before. Probably still thinking yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So you got this graphic novel coming out based on your 1987 album, Among the Living. So what can you tell us about it and who's involved? We are. We're involved. Yeah. We're very involved. We're very, we're, we are very involved. Nope. So uh, actually, we gave a list, and and Scott could you know echo that that the people that we got to to write it and and uh, illustrate it are just top notch. It's yeah, we made a amazing. we made a pretty serious wish list of we've been offered to do comics and things like that so many times over the years, and just every time for me in my brain, it, it just was always was not gonna it was gonna be cheesy. It wasn't gonna be something to represent the band in the right way. And when uh, Josh from Z2 came to us with this idea. And uh, so we said, all right, well, let's see. I, I like the idea of an anthology of taking every song on among the living and having a writer do his take on what that song means to him, basically. So we made a wish list of people because if we couldn't get the people that we wanted, then my attitude is like, then why, why would we do this? I want to get like really great people involved and pretty much everyone we wanted got involved. So it was, whether it's like a guy like Grant Morrison or like Rob Zombie, um, you know, it's just like incredible people uh, down the line involved in this, even uh, Gerard way who obviously from being a guy in a band to crossing over into the comic book world, nobody's done it as big or as successfully as, as he has. So, you know, and the fact that, you know, him and his brother, uh, Mikey, they, they were like big anthrax fans. So they're doing caught in a mosh. And I haven't read their story yet, but I have read some of the stories that have been coming in and they're, they're awesome. So, yeah, that's, I think that's what really sold us on the idea was that we were able to get the talent we wanted and then having someone like Grant Morrison take a song like uh, Indians and when you read his take on what that, I mean, you can only imagine where it's going to go. You, you can't imagine where it's going to go. So uh, it's, it's been a pretty great thing. And of course, Charlie, Charlie uh, painted one of the Judge Dredd. Uh, we didn't know actually we were going to get to use Judge Dredd at first, right. right? We were hoping we would be able to use it. And then, 
they were able to get us the rights to do a dread story. So Charlie, Charlie did a dread painting for that. And, uh, and I had this story idea kicking around for a couple of years because my buddy used to run IDW comics, my buddy, Chris Ryle. And, uh, when they started putting out dread in America, he asked me one time, do you want to do kind of like we do the main story and then we do these little short stories as a second feature in the book. And, uh, he asked me if I wanted to do one. So I came up with an idea and it, it just never ended up happening, but I had this idea kicking around for so long. And uh, so I fleshed it out for this and then rebellion in the UK who owns dread, they had to give us the, they had to read my pitch and, you know, okay, give us the green light basically whether or not. It's okay. And they did. So now I'm under the pressure of great. I, I love that. They loved my idea, but now I actually have to write it. And uh, <laughs> I'm kind of kind of shitting my pants a little bit. So, working with Brian Posen, uh, Corey Taylor, Rob Zombie, and others contributing to the project, what were some of the specific contributions? Uh, was it artwork, uh, character concepts, or storyline? They're all writers. They're all writing. Yeah, all the artists. Um, we have an editor involved named Ian Sattler, who used to be at DC for years and years. He was actually my editor on my Lobo book, and. Uh, he's so entrenched in the world of Marvel and DC and he knows everybody like that's how we got Brian Azzarello. I mean, it's just insane to me that we've got Brian Azzarello writing a story based on an anthrax song. Like, and then uh, Ian was able to put together <laughs> most, most of the artists too, as well, because, you know, whether it was older school guys that we were fans of or new guys that we had never even heard of, but he was like sending us artwork you know, all the time. And it'll be like, Oh my God, that guy's shit is amazing. You know? And, and we had Greg Nicotero redesign the not man for this. And um, just the, the people involved have really kind of lifted it up to a level. I never thought we would be able to do. Yeah. So it's like, we now Scott and I, we're not even up here. We're on the bottom. Because exactly. Else is, <laughs> yeah. It's like, is it our book? That must be really cool, though, to kind of see all these different interpretations and have the songs get, you know, another life and to see these stories kind of come back at you inspired by that work must be an incredible experience. Well, I mean, after after talking to Scott, you know, like about what the concept was for the piece that I did, uh, as soon as we were discussing it and he told me, I just immediately jumped in. Like, I think I finished it in the weekend, the 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 uh, illustration because I was so excited about it, you know? And then I started working on another one too, but uh, I'm so excited about this because it's, it's, uh, it's something that we've never done before. It's like, wow, this is like a baby that we had in 87. Now we're going to have another one in 21. It might be you know a little premature to, to ask, but is it something that you'd love to do again with other albums? I mean, based on the outpouring of your cinematic and literary influences across all your albums and artwork, it's really a field that's kind of ripe for reaping. You never know. Persistence I mean, would be cool. Yeah, definitely. I think thematically, certainly lyrically, Persistence of Time would be an amazing record to do with. I think so would For All Kings. You know, if we ever had a chance to do something like this again, and just depending on who we could get to be involved. Obviously Stephen King was on our list. He's in the middle of a novel. So something that he, he couldn't stop working on one of those times, like where I got an email from Stephen King and I'm super excited. And then I was like, damn it. Like, <laughs> you know, 
What do you mean you can't stop your novel to work on an anthrax comic? <laughs> Where is his priority? Yeah, yeah, right. Are there any plans to uh, bring this graphic novel to the big screen or make a series? <laughs> I can't even. I was. Just, I had so many funny things in my head, but I'm like, I'm not even going to start with that. Could you imagine? Hey, you if know, that you never happened, know. Though? What if? Uh, yeah. What if? With all the people involved, like some of the people involved are already involved in TV and stuff like that. So you never know. It's always possible someone might decide they want to option this for some type of anthology series. And speaking of that industry it ties in your exploration and friends within that industry, uh, Scott, you had this two really successful and awesome runs hosting TV shows where you would go and visit with some of these makeup guys. I'm talking about Blood and Guts and then Bloodworks that you did for two years in 2014. And man, you talked to everybody from Rick Baker to Gary Tunnicliffe and Tony Gardner and all the KMB guys. What was that experience like for you? How did that start? Were you was that something you were approached to, or did you go out and seek that? No, I was approached uh, a guy named Jack Bennett. Well, I actually it started with Chris Hardwick. The long story short is, years ago, after like the first season of Walking Dead, I got a call to go to New York and do this TV show with Chris Hardwick, where they were going to shoot a pilot for what was to become The Talking Dead. And my friend was like. Yeah, it's going to be like an after show where you like basically you've just seen the episode and then you guys are going to talk about it. And I'm like, who the fuck would ever watch that? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But yeah, I'll go to New York and I was already friends with Chris. So why not? Long story short, obviously, Talking Dead went without me. um, But, you know, Chris and I were always friends. And at some point, Chris said, hey, we've got this idea. Nerdist, we've teamed up with Fangoria and we want to do this show and blah, blah, blah. Would you want to go hang out with effects guys? And. I was like, yeah, I I love that world. That would be amazing. So that's kind of how it came together. And I loved doing it. I love sitting. I'll sit all day long in the chair and get made up. I don't care how much crap, how much blood. I remember Nicotero like apologizing to me about, oh, I'm sorry. I got guts and blood on on you. I'm like, dude, what do you create more? Please dump (laughs) a vat of it. Like, I don't care. Like. It was so much fun. I, I, I wish someday, you know, I, I, I can do more of that. It was it was great. I mean, we took that little tiny show of ours, me and our director, Jack Bennett. And, uh, you know, we were able to actually get on the set of Walking Dead and have me do a cameo. Like so for me, that was kind of like the ultimate. We took it to like the ultimate spot. Biggest horror show on television. I got to be made into a zombie and and killed. You know, so it was uh, it was great. <laughs> and Charlie, you recently held an art show in Chicago and it was framed by an awesome image of this half bride of Frankenstein, half Frankenstein's monster. What can you tell us about that? I did one side of my girlfriend, uh, Carla Harvey. She did the other side. She's a singer in the, the band, the Butcher Babies. So her and I, we kind of bonded through art and metal. And um, so she's like, we should do an art show. And for me. I'm still scared to do it because I've never done anything like this. I'm not, I don't have the security of uh, drums in front of me. You know what I mean? I'm like out there, but I've been doing so much art during this pandemic that, okay, I think I could show everybody what I've been doing. All right, Charlie and Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Sorry yeah, we went man. over. Yeah. We appreciate it so oh, much. I don't care. Dude, that's great. I mean, you know, you get involved in it, you start talking and uh, there you go. Right, exactly, man. <laughs> right on. Thank you. And hopefully we'll do this again. 
We could talk for hours. Thanks, guys. Awesome, Thank man. You. Later. Thanks, Charlie. Bye. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 216. Special thanks to our guests, Charlie Benante and Scott Ian. At time of release, you can pre-order the Among the Living graphic novel now over at Anthrax.com. Music for this episode from Anthrax. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.